After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified. But Jesus came up and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. You can be seated. Yeah, you said it perfectly. Good, good. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Didn't Mitch tell you to be seated perfectly? He did great. He did a good job. Thank you, Mitch. Okay. Um, We've been talking about dedication this month, and this is our, uh, our last week to be talking about that, so I'm excited to do that. And I feel like, I think it's been every week of the month, uh, in one service or the other, we've had a family that's placed membership and dedicated themselves to the work along with this church. Isn't that pretty cool? So today we're welcoming Jacob and Caitlin George. Are you guys here? Can you give us a wave or stand up or, or something like that? Right back here, let's just welcome Jacob and Caitlin. Thanks, guys. You can go ahead and be seated now. It's been uh, so fun to be welcoming families in with us. And as we've been talking about dedication uh, of our whole being to God, we've been using this prayer, the Shema, which Jesus prayed daily, and the Jewish people that he was a part of prayed daily. So let's read it and pray it again together this morning. And we're going to read it off the screen, but can you put yourself in a place of mind right now where this could be a prayer? Let's put ourselves in a place of mind where this is a prayer right now. Not just reading, not just doing what the preacher says to do, but let's pray this together. Are you ready? Let's pray it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. God, let it be true. Amen? Amen. And so we've been looking at scriptures through the Shema to see what is revealed when we look at them through this particular lens. And today we're going to look at the transfiguration on the mountain that we just heard read. But first, let's take a stop over in Luke chapter 9 for just a minute. Uh, James and John are up on the mountain of transfiguration, and so they're important characters in that story. And James and John uh, are Jewish kids who grew up to follow Jesus and they did on Saturday mornings what good Jewish kids always were supposed to do. They went to synagogue on the Sabbath and they read from the scriptures just like an activity that many of us American kids who grew up in our culture do an activity on Saturday morning and you all know what it is. What's the Saturday morning activity for American kids everywhere it's to? Watch cartoons. Not so much today as it was in my time, but this was a big deal when I was growing up. It's the one day a week that we were allowed to get up early while mom and dad are still asleep and run the house by ourselves. 
We were allowed to pour ourselves one or two bowls of the sugariest cereal available and rot our teeth and our brains watching cartoons all morning long, Superman and Batman and Spider-Man and Fantastic Four, and we saw in them what we wanted to become. We saw in them power and ability. We saw in our superheroes people who were tall and thin and strong, white, upper middle class people like, um, like Batman and Superman who were making the world a better place and using their power for good. And it was so easy to know who the good guys were and who the bad guys were because the good guys had this certain look. They looked like us and they wore uniforms and that made it really easy to know who they were. The bad guys also wore uniforms, and their skin was usually green or purple, and they had long, sinister-looking mustaches or big, brainy craniums that were way too oversized, and they looked like aliens or creepy, and their uniforms were dark, and they were just very sinister and bad. So it was clear to everybody who was good and who was wrong. And the same was true for James and John. When they read on Saturday mornings from the Torah, and the prophets, their Bible, they are finding their heroes. This was entertaining. It was their stories. This is people of power, impressive prophets from the past, people that looked like them and smelled like them that were shorter and uh, kind of Middle Eastern looking and browner and people that went to uh, synagogue and that obeyed the Sabbath and read the Torah, people like Elijah and Moses that were heroes for James and John. And so, James and John are walking with Jesus one day, full of imagination from the Bible. And Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, where he is going to be crucified, lay his life down for many people, and be raised for the justification of the whole world. And he has set his face to go to Jerusalem. He has to pass through Samaria. And these Samaritans... They don't come out and honor Jesus the way that James and John think that they should. These Samaritans aren't paying close enough attention. They don't come out and worship Jesus. They don't throw any fanfare. It's time to prepare the meal and nobody is there to help. And James and John know who the good guys are and they know who the bad guys are and they know what power is at stake and so they say to Jesus in this burst of impassioned, biblical-fueled energy, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? They know who the good guys are, but they don't know how to read them. My brother walked into my room one morning, Eric. He was nine and a half, I was 12. I had this nice big room that was all my own. I had windows on two walls. I had enough space I could line all my baseball cards up and organize them alphabetically. I was a real nerd like that. And in my little peaceful sanctuary strides in my brother Eric. He's in my space. And he comes in and he stares me down. It's like one of those Wild West moments. I'm like, what is this? Eric's staring. I'm looking back at him. And all of a sudden, he just reels back, cocked fist, and punches me 
in the nose. I'm stammering backwards. I'm like, what is that for? He goes, I've always just wanted to see what it felt like. <laughs> then he turns around and walks out of the room. And if I remember correctly, he just kind of goes, huh. Now, I'm pretty sure that I chased him down and tackled him and we had it all out. And then we raced down the stairs to get to mom and try to be the first one to tell her our version of the story so the other guy would get in trouble. But my brother has been watching men of power. He knows that they make the world right by punching the bad guys. Do you remember Batman from the good old days? Pow! The word would come up on the screen. Kablam! The word would come up on the, you know. And he knows from the stories that we watch on Saturday mornings, what heroes do, he just doesn't know when to use it. James and John don't know when to use it. They know who to read, but they're not sure what they're supposed to bring forward into their life and application from what they're reading in the Bible. Oh, they believe all the Bible is true and inspired. Every word of it is the word of God. They believe that the way we do, but they are mistaken about which parts apply to them and they don't even know it. So in the King James Version and in the New King James Version, there's a little verse right after this that's not in most of our modern Bibles, but it's a fantastic little verse where Jesus says, you do not know what spirit you are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy lives, but to save. You do not know what spirit you are of, James and John, that just because you're reading the Bible does not mean that you know what to do with it. In other words, from Jesus' mouth, all of the Bible is not level in that all of it applies to you today in this way. You've got to learn how to read it and what spirit to read it in. And so today we find ourselves on the mountain of transfiguration with the same James and John who know who the heroes are. And they know what the heroes do. The heroes are Moses and Elijah. In verse 3, they get invited on this trip to the mountain to pray. And I suppose for James and John and Peter, this feels really good to them. We're being invited on a prayer retreat with Jesus alone. James and John are walking along arguing about which one of them is Jesus' favorite. Peter is sorting through his knapsack to make sure he has everything he needs. Got a couple fish sandwiches in there. They're ready for their special time away with the Lord. And then they see him transfigured. They see him beaming with God energy that is so potent that his physical being can't contain the glory of his godness and it is shining out of him. And then all of a sudden there's Moses and Elijah. There are their heroes in front of them. And I just want us to realize that the stories that they know about Moses and Elijah they've, have prepared them and fueled them for this moment because Moses was on a mountain too. Moses went up on the mountain, invited by God to wait for a week 
And then the cloud settled around him and the glory of God was there and Moses for 40 days and 40 nights gets instructions from God about how the people are going to become a nation and how they should worship and how to build the tabernacle which is this tent of worship that they worship God in. And Moses, he comes down off the mountain into his terror and chagrin and his embarrassment the people of God have taken gold and they've melted down earrings and they have made an idol that looks like a baby cow of all of the ridiculous things to make your God (laughs) a baby cow Moses is beside himself how could the people do this? And so they have to choose sides and some people come to Moses' side and there ends up being all kinds of conflict and trouble and Moses has to deal with this and then once it's resolved and the people are, who are left are part of Moses' group, now Moses goes back into the tent of meeting to see what God is going to say to them and the cloud settles over the tent and now that all the people are in tune with what is going on, they all stand outside the tent and they worship while Moses is in the tent talking to God. He's in this tabernacle speaking with the Almighty. And Moses is so saturated with the glory of God in these stories. He gets invited on the mountain one more time in Exodus chapter 35 that when he comes back down from this second mountaintop experience, his face is glowing like a nuclear reactor and he has to wear a veil so that the people's eyes are not melted out of their sockets. The glory of God is palpable. Elijah is the prophet of God who stands against Ahab, the wicked king, and it's so easy to see that he's wicked. It's almost like he's wearing the bad guy uniform. He sacrifices the false gods, ignores the true God. He has 850 false prophets that worship Baal and Ashtoreth. And so Elijah goes up on another mountain and he calls all those prophets around him. And he's like, you go first. Why don't you pray to your gods and see if you can bring fire from the skies? And so the prophets are like, it's a deal. And they start to worship, call and pray on their gods. Nothing's happening. So they start to get a little, they start to dance. This is what old prophets do that are false prophets, right? This is how we know they're bad guys. They're dancing in worship. (laughs) Just kidding. They're worshiping with dance to try to call a fire down. And Elijah, who is a classic, classic jokester, stands over to the side and goes, Hey, what's wrong? Is your God sleeping? Cat caller Elijah. Mocker Elijah. One of the all time great mockers. Hey, what's wrong? Is your God, you know, sleeping in today? So they pull out their knives and their swords and they start to cut their bodies until they're bleeding. They're dancing and they're bleeding and they're swinging knives around and it's all getting crazy. And Elijah's over on the side going, Can no one wake him up? And then he steps up and he's like, Y'all stop. Build the altar up, put the wood on it, pour water on it, soak the wood, drench the wood, do it again, do it a third time, make this place just a lake. Then he prays, fire from heaven, God, boom, 
here it comes, the fire roars, it burns the whole thing into ash, the whole thing melting, and the false prophets, man, they know they're in now. They know they've got it now. Fire from heaven. John's been reading about him. James has been reading about him. Here they are on the mountain. Jesus is glowing. The glory of God is before them, and here's Moses, and here's Elijah, men of great power. We are included in the meeting of the ages. The writers of the Old Testament have shown up with our Messiah and we've been included. They're the past and we're the future. Here we go, guys. We've got, we're going to step into this too, right? We're the new ones on the mountain with God. They're so impressed with themselves and so afraid. And so Peter Always the first one out front. He says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. And he means it. He's like, Jesus, it's so great that myself and James and John are the ones that you picked. Like, this is wonderful. We are ready to be entrusted with the power. You know, give it. I know what we should do, Jesus. Let's build three skene, he says. He says three tents. Let's build three skene. In John chapter 1, when it says Jesus became flesh and he made his dwelling among us, it uses the verb form of the word skene. It says he put his tent among us, that Jesus tabernacled among us. Here, Peter's like, I know what we should do for these mighty men of power. Let's build three tabernacles, three houses of worship. Moses would go into the one and they would worship there. Let's build one for Moses and one for Elijah and Jesus will give you one too. We're gonna have three equal options of worship here on the mountain and people can come up the mountain to see the holy men of God and they can choose. You want door number one or door number two or door number three? I know Peter doesn't say all of that, but this is what he means. He's like, we need three houses of worship. We are impressed that Jesus is in the pantheon of heroes like Moses and Elijah, and then the cloud covers them, and the voice from the cloud speaks and says, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And to Peter's dismay and John and James, in that moment, God says, this is not what you think it is. We're not having three superheroes of the faith. We're having one. And everything that you think you know that is said by the other two has to be filtered through the sun. You're so big on this fire from heaven power that you want to call down on the lowly Samaritans. You've yet to even understand what power is for. This spirit that you are of is not the spirit of the Son. The disciples hear this voice that, no, there's just the one, the Son, and they fall face down on the ground and they're terrified now and Jesus comes up and he touches them. Jesus touches lepers who are untouchable. Jesus touches the blind to heal them. And Jesus touches these disciples in their fear when they realize they've made the gravest of mistakes. They have misunderstood the power of their heroes 
and the scriptures for being the final revelation of God and he has said no it's in the son they're terrified and he touches them in that moment he's healing them and restoring them but he's also reminding them there's one with the power to touch you one with the power to heal you one with the power to guide your hand get up he said don't be afraid and when they looked up they saw no one but Jesus alone this is very emphatic in the text they saw no one but Jesus alone and then Jesus as they're headed down the mountain does this incredibly strange thing they're walking down the mountain and now again they are excited I assume because now they know what spirit they're of. We're not about all of the heroes and all of the power. We're about Jesus and his power. But do you know that the moment that James and John call fire down on the Samaritans that they try to is actually on the way down this mountain? It's after this moment. Six days before this, Peter said the words, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said on that statement, I will build my church. Messiah, Son of God. But at that moment that Peter said it, he didn't know what spirit he was of. He said the words, he didn't know what they meant. He said the words, he's thinking all of this power. And Jesus is thinking the cross, the grave, the resurrection from the dead. And so on the way down the mountain, Jesus, containing their fervor, says to them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. You do not know what spirit you are of. Spirit is going to fall on you like fire from heaven, but it's not going to be until Pentecost when it is the Spirit that leads you into the nations to die for them like I've died for you. It's not going to be the Spirit of destructive power. It's going to be the Spirit of life-giving. You do not know what Spirit you are of. And we see in these moments with Jesus on the mountaintop that all of the prophets, Moses and Elijah, who are the stand-in for the greatest lawgiver and the greatest prophet, they're on the southern slope preparing us for Jesus. And what they say is true. Every breath of Scripture comes from God. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. And so too, the men on the north side of the slope, heading down the other side of the mountain, Peter and John will write about five of the letters of the New Testament as well as a revelation, and they'll be influential in a couple of gospels. And so these guys are the scripture writers of the future. But the south slope and the north slope meet where the sun is shining with the glory of God and the pronouncement that this is the one. Read all of my book through him. So if you want to call fire down from heaven because that's what Elijah does, you have to ask the question that we all wore on wristbands in the 90s. What would Jesus do? And you have to ask, is this what Jesus does? When Elijah calls fire down from heaven to take care of his enemy problem, what does Jesus do with his enemy problem? Pray for your enemies. Bless them. When Moses has to put to death with the sword rebellious Israelites that are idolaters, and Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called sons of God. And Jesus says, forgive seven times, 70 times. Who are you going to listen to? When Christians try to justify 
The way we treat any other person or group by appealing to a scripture, we should automatically ask, and what did Jesus do with that? Moses said to you, but I say to you. You've heard that it was written, but I say to you. What does Jesus do with that? And so Peter, reflecting on this years later in his life, but writing this document years before the Gospels get written down and circulated. See where he's at here? He's years down the road from the transfiguration, but this letter gets out to the churches before the Gospels do. Peter says, we didn't follow any clever stories when we told you about the coming of Jesus. We weren't standing up here as comedian preachers. We weren't giving you seven steps to a better life or self-help topics. We weren't even concerned every week with whether or not what we were saying was immediately applicable to you. We weren't using rhetoric and polish and smoke and mirrors. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God when the voice came to him from the majestic glory and said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. We heard the voice from heaven and we were on the sacred mountain. Peter is finally released to tell the story. Don't tell it until after the resurrection. But after Jesus is raised, Peter's free to write this letter. He says, I was there. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Now I know how to view my heroes. We also have the prophets completely reliable. Moses and Elijah that Peter was raised on. He doesn't back away from them and say they're wrong. He says they're completely reliable if they're read through the lens of Jesus. He said, you would do well to pay attention to Scripture. You know what? For Peter, this is about his own letter too. What the prophets wrote on the south slope and what the apostles write on the north slope is all God-breathed and useful, but it is not all level ground. The mountain are the words of Jesus. So he says the prophetic message, it's something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as if it were a light shining in a dark place. As if in the middle of the night you had some starlight to guide you down the path. But when the sun rises, we don't look for the starlight anymore. When the sun breaks the horizon, we put our flashlights away and we walk in the light of the sun. Amen? And so he says, may the morning star rise in your heart so that you will learn that even though it's sometimes easy to see who the good guys are, it is not always easy to see what you should do with their power. Look to the sun to see what to do with our power and worship the sun who's enthroned by God. Let's stand and sing this morning. The Savior.